Verdun was a picnic compared to this. From the memoir, In the Line, 1914-1918, through 1918, by Georg Bucher, Morval, the Somme, 1916. Hey folks, welcome to the Battles of the First World War podcast, episode 25, Psalm, A Tale of Two Vols, part one, Morval. Thank you everyone for the recent reviews and donations. They are humbly and gratefully received. Thank you for getting the BFWWP to over 50 reviews on iTunes. I am thrilled, truly. To Adam, Kurt, Ryan, Josh, Steve, and others, thank you so very much. As I've hopefully said here before, the Battle of Verdun podcast and the BFWWP have been so much fun to research, write, and produce, and Both podcasts have been great gateways to getting to meet such interested and interesting listeners such as yourselves. Thank you again for taking the time to write reviews on iTunes and for making such generous donations. Thank you. All right, so here we are after a bit of a delay. So back home, we've started a new school year, and I now realize that September will be the silly season for me. It's a really busy time. But here we are, back in the line, back with our Tommies, our Poilus, and our Sommkempfer. We're going to start by just taking a quick look at this episode's opening quote. Verdun was a picnic compared to this. That line comes from a gritty memoir written by one Georg Bucher, whose English title is In the Line, 1914-1918. I do not have much information on Bucher other than what's found in the memoir. A few minutes long search of Google doesn't even reveal any photos of him that I could find. Maybe an original copy of the memoir would give us that photo, but otherwise we don't have that available to us. All that is really a digression. Because I want to talk about that quote, okay? For those of you who have listened to my first podcast project, the Battle of Verdun podcast, you'll know that Verdun, for damned sure, was no picnic. But... The artillery battle being fought on the Somme in the autumn of 1916 was rivaling and apparently surpassing the horror of the mill on the Meuse. It had to be truly and mind-shatteringly apocalyptic for a hardened Frenchwein to say Verdun was a walk in the park compared to the Somme. But there it was. 
the 15th of September had been an overall good but very bloody day for the British Expeditionary Force. For the German army struggling to hold back the enemy, it was a day that pushed it closer to the edge of the cliff. The Frontschwein were worn out but holding. There were, however, signs that the slow, grinding, and lurching two-and-a-half-month-long push by the British was having an effect on the German army. The experienced officers and NCOs of the German army, those who had survived up until the summer of 1916, were now disappearing fast. They fell to the relentless artillery gods that demanded sacrifice by the battalion load on the Somme, perishing in the flames of shell bursts and vanishing under a sea of poisoned brown earth in Picardy. Men who had made it through the 1914 and 1915 battles, who had even managed to make it through Verdun, found that at the Somme, they were out of time. The fighting capability of the German army was beginning to show the loss of these experienced battlefield leaders, declining morale, more men willing to take their chances and surrender, less cohesive counteroffensive responses to attacks, and more haphazard local counterattacks that didn't carry the same punch they used to. But for now, despite all this, the German army held. It continued to stand a post at its living wall that stood as a horrific scar upon the land of northern France and Belgium. The weather, however, was not holding. Summer began to definitely fade as September carried on. There were still to be some hot days, but the summer heat was steadily giving way to autumn temperatures. On the night of the 15th, a raw and steady rain covered the front as temperatures dropped. With the rain falling on the shell-plowed Picardy soil, mud now returned as a new enemy to the British and French, for it was these two armies that had to traverse the devastated battlefield. The Germans, for the most part, held battered but largely undestroyed villages and roads in and through which men could rest and resupply. Mud slowed everything down, making even routine movement, like bringing rations to the front line, a task as exhausting as it was dangerous. With mud ever more of a presence on the Somme front, extra time to do just about anything had to be taken into consideration. In the days after the 15th of September, fighting continued, but not on the grand scale the British Fourth Army's General Sir Henry Rawlinson had wanted. Between the 16th and the 24th, the 14th and 41st Divisions had been respectively replaced by the 21st and 55th West Lancashire Divisions. Local attacks continued throughout these days, with the focus of fighting at a point northwest of the village of Flair. This was the junction of Drop and Goose alleys, and small but bloody actions initiated by the Tommies here shifted the front line by a dismal 40 yards, and then later an additional sad 70 yards. 
To the south-southeast, the quadrilateral redoubt finally fell to the British on the 18th. And this cleared the way for an assault on Morval and Les Boeufs. These two villages were to have been taken on the 15th, but German resistance had stopped the advance of the Guards' division. Over the next several days, preparations were made to assault Morval and Les Boeufs. Morval village was another in a long line of sleepy Picardy villages in pre-war times, but now its military value made it prime real estate on a largely flat battlefield. The village, or yes, what was left of it, sat on high ground that guarded the village of Comble to the south. The British and French were both working to maneuver together on Comble, and Morval's fall would be key to the taking of Comble. Taking Morval would also open the way to assaulting and capturing the Transloire ridges, the last line of low hills between the British army and Bapaume. Morval, however, had been carefully built up as a fortress and was defended by the capable Rhinelanders of Reserve Infantry Regiment 236. On September 24th, with the British 5th Division in place and ready to make the attack, the guns turned on Morval and its vicinity. A limited bite-and-hold operational plan was chosen for taking the village. No grandiose breakthrough to Bapaume, no ideas like that. Just break through the German trenches and take this village. The cavalry would be on call just in case miracles happened. The guns had not been silent. They never were. The artillery battle of the Somme continued day and night, pounding the nearly helpless men pressing themselves into the earth desperately. As the bombardment ripped, pounded, and scoured the lines east of Morval, Sergeant Georg Bucher was moving into the area. Returning from convalescent leave after being wounded at Verdun, he was bringing with him a handful of men to reconnect with his unit. If that unit was the 236th IRR or not, we cannot say for certain. Sergeant Bucher and his men reached their battalion zone amidst a hellish bombardment. We skirted the ridge and passed along a ditch that had once been a communicator or communication trench, Bucher wrote. The bombardment was heaviest, just a little to our flank. We were lucky and reached without loss a high slope where we halted. Three men came panting from somewhere ahead of us. They had been sent to guide us to our position and were shouting for the company commander. On we went, passing to the right of smoking ruins where the smell was simply foul. I saw corpses mutilated beyond recognition in and around the village. Many of the dead were in blood-stained bandages. It hadn't been possible to get even the wounded back to safety. Ahead of us, a new reserve position was being dug with furious energy. The men were working half-naked in spite of the heavy shelling. Open boxes of hand grenades were lying all around. Those fellows were certainly no cowards. Farther forward, the trenches had been altogether flattened out. We were walking across what had once been the third line. Arms, heads, 
and legs were still sticking up from the plowed up ground. We had to trample on bodies and limbs. It was impossible to avoid them. On the 25th of September, zero hour came. The British 5th Division attacked the trenches before Morval. Sergeant Georg Bucher was at the Battle of Morval, but this is where his story and history don't quite line up. This could be a fog of war situation where Bucher later didn't know exactly where he was at the time. This is an understandable situation as the battlefield had been smashed to pieces and one shattered village looked like all the others. Quote, we, 70 men with five machine guns, were moved back 300 yards to the newly dug line, back through the gray morning light and the fountains of mud. Only 70 of us, all that remained out of twice that number of men who had occupied the position scarcely four hours before, and during that time the enemy hadn't attacked once. Again, we trod over the bodies and limbs of the old third line. The new trench, though lacking dugouts or even shelters, was at least deep enough for a man to stand upright. It was a wonderful relief to us to be able to straighten ourselves after the agonizing period of crouching and stooping and to have parapets in front of us, although they needed strengthening. Moreover, a miserable apology for wire entanglements had been erected. Within a few minutes, we had got our machine guns into position. Then every man seized a spade and, unbidden, dug with a crazy, desperate energy. Fonau next to me, and beyond him a platoon commander. Men and officers, even the company commander, were all digging. Whoever wanted a hole to shelter in had to make it himself. Our lives and much more were at stake. An hour passed. We were still digging as frantically, as desperately as ever. A hundred yards behind us, another line was being constructed, the support line, to which communicators had yet to be made. Did the English know we had retired? A heavily built aeroplane came humming over us. Like a carrion crow, a bird of prey, it hovered not more than 300 yards above us. How we cursed it. Then it climbed steeply, a signal. Heavy caliber shells came howling toward us. The plane directed them nearer and nearer. We were helpless. That hound should be tied to the mouth of a cannon and blown to bits, the platoon commander exclaimed angrily. The artillery clown continued to direct the shells closer and closer to us. We had eight dead before the monster at last retired, followed by our foulest curses. There was still much work to be done, and we had to clear the dead out of our way. Suddenly, the shellfire came down on us with diabolical fury. We were being ripened for the Tommy's attack. Two hours later, they advanced under cover of a moving barrage, thin lines of steel-helmeted figures. Our fire devoured them greedily. Fresh lines came on and were devoured. Still, more and more came on. Either they were utterly careless of death, or else, what was far more likely, they had been doped with whiskey. 
yet they couldn't reach us. Then our barrage came down. No barrage could have been more intense or more compact. That stopped the Tommies, and they went to earth in a line of shell holes right among the heaped-up bodies of their own dead. Once more, their artillery fire broke over us with infernal noise and intensity, but that couldn't restore to life the hundreds of their dead. An hour later, the attack was resumed, not far off on our left, with the result that our flank was exposed. A desperate counterattack restored the situation. The English were literally hacked to bits. The carnage was unbelievable. So too was the English bravery. In the meanwhile, despite the severity of the shelling, a few communicators had been dug through to us from the support line. Ammunition was poured into our trench. Cartridges, cartridges, cartridges. But no bread, no water, no coffee, or anything drinkable. Our water bottles were almost empty. We were to suffer agonies of thirst, for the day was blazingly hot. At midday, the Tommies attacked again, but our bullets devoured them. Nonetheless, one or two more of such attacks and would have been all up with us. The company commander came through the trench. How many men have you? He asked, looking at the platoon commander, hopefully. The hope in his eyes vanished when he heard the reply. Is that all? He said quietly, but his voice was hoarse and desperate. Then he walked tiredly away. He had commanded 140 men on the previous evening. Now he had only 32 of them left. Slowly, as the afternoon and evening passed, our beautiful trench degenerated into a wilderness of shell holes. Our shelters were so inadequate, so miserably weak. Reinforcements arrived with a few light drum-fed machine guns. They brought two, some small loaves, some tinned meat and half a bottle of soda water for each of us. How we blessed the old man in Boulot Wood. Heaven only knew how many curses that precious soda water had cost him. At dark, we were relieved by Prussians. The sweat poured from them. Their division had marched more than 20 miles that day in order to relieve us. They weren't very enthusiastic about the shelters we had dug, but I carried back with me a feeling that within a very short time, they would be still less enthusiastic about the pugnacity of the Tommies. We lost no time in getting back. Behind the long ridge, additional reserves from the newly arrived division were standing in readiness. Some of the men of that division went back with us, wounded. They had marched more than 20 miles in blazing heat, only to be hit the very same evening, and have to march back again. End quote. Since Bulo Wood, a.k.a. Bollocks Wood, was mentioned, Bucher and his men may have been closer to Comble, but this is just speculation. History records the British 5th Division attacking Morval and receiving machine gun fire from Comble as well as a strong point on the Jeanchy morval Road. But good use of mortars and incredibly brave bombers helped clear the way for the rest of the Tommies. Less than an hour after the infantry assault began, the southern half of Morval had been taken, and by 3 p.m., 
on the 25th, the first Cheshires had taken the northern half. There were considerable losses, but by nightfall, the village windmill beyond the village had been taken. Battle abounded. On the 25th of September, a member of the 1st Cheshires, Private Thomas Alfred Jones, engaged the enemy in actions that would earn him the Victoria Cross. Having seen a friend killed by a German sniper as their unit consolidated their newly gained front line, Jones went off to get revenge. He located the sniper, and the sniper located him too. The German shot first, putting a bullet through Jones's coat and then another bullet through Jones's helmet. Miraculously, Jones was uninjured. Reverend Jones fired back and killed that sniper. Continuing forward, he encountered two Germans who were waving the white flag of surrender but were still firing at him. British troops were keenly aware of and always on guard against German trickery and incidents like these were legend in the trenches. Here was a case of it actually happening. Jones shot both men and then ran towards a line of half-flattened trenches where he found dugouts full of enemy troops. Two German officers who offered resistance were shot by Jones. His presence and demeanor must have been extraordinarily powerful because he proceeded to convince 102 Germans to disarm and surrender. Four men from his unit then caught up with him and marched the prisoners back. Jones accomplished an incredible act of battlefield bravery that was witnessed by at least 11 officers, all of whom were like, bro, this guy needs a VC-like stat. I think it's also telling of German morale that 102 men surrendered to one admittedly severely pissed off Tommy. Private Jones would receive his Victoria Cross from His Majesty King George V on the 18th of November, a date that will be an important one for us. There were significant losses, but the capture of Morval was seen as a solid success and proof that these bite and hold operations were the best way to execute military operations at this time. Capture of Morval also opened the way to the capture of other villages around it. This would be a good place to use the old analogy of falling dominoes. But as this is World War I, please imagine instead a row of dominoes that someone then pounded with a sledgehammer repeatedly. The capture of these villages was like using a brush and dustpan to gather up the debris of those shattered dominoes. Le Boeuf, another target untaken on the 15th, also fell that day. A thorough smashing by the artillery and limited objectives for the attacking guards and 6th divisions again created conditions that led to success. German resistance was strong and casualties were heavy, but by the end of the day the guards had taken the northern half of the ruined villages while the Tommies of the 6th Division had cleared the southern half. 
Geardcore came under attack, with men of the 10th King's Own Yorkshire Light Infantry, the 1st East Yorkshires, and men of the 9th and 8th Leicesters, all going over the top and towards the Gird trenches. The attacks here became confused, with heavy machine gun fire causing heavy losses. Parts of Gird Trench were taken, but others remained stubbornly in German hands. Even with the New Zealand division in support, the attacks on Geardcore had to be stopped when progress could not be made. A new attack was delayed until the following day. South of Morval, Lake Comble, close to which were the junction of the British and French armies on the Western Front. Protected by surrounding hills and fortified by the Germans, 1,200 Germans of Infantry Reserve Regiment 234 were defending it. Comble was hit with an artillery barrage and then attacked by the British and French armies in separate assaults on the 25th. The goal was to encircle the village. On the French side, the Poilus of Fayol's 6th Army captured the village of Rancourt and pushed northwest into the Bois-Saint-Pierre-Vast. This squeezed Comble from the east. While that was happening, Tommies of the 56th Division pushed attacks from the north, squeezing the Germans from that direction. At the end of the day, German boots still stood in the rubble of the village, but those boots were on increasingly shaky ground. The next day saw a joint assault on Comble by the British and French. This time, there were two breakthroughs. Tommies poured through the lines from the west, and Poilus smashed through the Germans from the southeast. Comble was liberated from German occupation a short time later. The 26th saw a new attack on Geardcore to the north as well, this time with a tank and an early form of air support. It was a scene that today is classic combined arms warfare. Tank D4, commanded by 2nd Lieutenant Story, grinding out of flare towards geared core and advancing on the geared trenches. Behind the tank was a group of Leicester men, all trained as bombers, following in the tank's wake. Above, a pilot of the RFC flew low and fired his machine guns at any Germans who dared show themselves. As Story approached the enemy trenches, his crew opened up on them with machine guns, mowing down anyone who couldn't get into a dugout in time. The Germans who ran into dugouts were then bombed out by the Leicester Tommies behind the tank. The Germans in front of Geardcore broke. Anyone who could ran for the ruins of the village, and here the RFC pilot came in low again blazing a trail of death on the shell-plowed ground with his machine guns. Lieutenant Story guided his tank straight into the village as the Lesters behind him cleared the trench lines. Story had thought there were maybe 50 Germans left in geared corps, but when he maneuvered his beast into the main street of the village, he found himself up against 10 times that number. He apparently blazed away with his machine guns for some time, until he had to withdraw for lack of fuel. Despite Story's withdrawal, the surviving Germans in Geardcore decided it was impossible to hang on to the village. 
They withdrew to the north, and Tommies took possession of it by noon. Over the next couple of days, the main actions on this part of the Somme front were very local actions that focused on consolidating British gains and the transferring of some of the front line from the Brits to the French. The Battle of Morval, as this series of operations was called in the official history of the war, lasted from the 25th through the 28th of September and saw the British front line jump forward some 2,000 yards in that time. Rawlinson's 4th Army now faced the task of taking the Transloire Ridges, and it was ready to execute. But before we get there, we have to shift over to Reserve Army's front, where we will see the battle for another Val. Our next episode will take us to the fight for Fortress Tipval, the ever-present thorn in the side of British forces on the Somme. It was time to take that target down. All right. So again, I just want to say thank you so very much once more for the reviews and the recent donations. The reviews are incredibly helpful in getting the show up there in iTunes rankings. And if you enjoy the podcast but have not yet submitted a review, please consider doing so. If time is an issue, as it is for many of us, please consider just leaving a starred review. Every single review helps, and of course, if time permits, please consider writing up your thoughts and leaving them for other potential listeners. One more thing for your consideration. If you have enjoyed the podcast and the work that goes into producing these episodes, please consider becoming a patron on Patreon. What is Patreon? Patreon is a website where you can choose to support the artists, musicians, and podcasters you like by committing to donate an amount of your choosing every time new material is released. For the BFWWP, that would be every time a new episode is released. You can choose to give $1, $5, or up to 50 if you like. Every single dollar helps maintain the podcast by either going to server costs or by going towards new research materials. If you are interested, you can find us at patreon.com slash battles of the first world war podcast. Patrons there get transcripts for each episode, as well as early access to new episodes and a few other perks. Every transcript has a bibliography that cites the books used for the episode, and you'll have access a day earlier than through iTunes. Again, thank you for your consideration. All right, so Tipval next time. I can't wait. Questions, comments, or concerns, please don't hesitate to contact me at verdunpodcast at gmail.com or hit me up on the Twitter at at www1podcast. You can also go through the website, firstworldwarpodcast.com or Battles of the First World War podcast page on the Facebook. Thank you so much for listening. Talk to you again soon. Take care.